This is the Nordic Asia podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast, co-hosted by the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies in Copenhagen and the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku. This is a new episode of the COVID-19 podcast series, focusing on Asian countries' responses to the pandemic. Today we will be discussing how Japan is coping with COVID-19. The national state of emergency was lifted in late May, and it seems Japan may have averted the worst-case scenarios, at least for now, with about 16,000 infected and 850 deaths, numbers which have been called quite low if we think about Japan's aging and densely living population. But what kind of impact has the pandemic had so far on the society? For example, of women or the most vulnerable social groups like the homeless or working poor? Today we'll also learn that Japan's responses to the disease have revealed interesting power play between the central and the local governments. My name is Celia Keva, and I'm joined today with two of my Japan specialist colleagues from the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku, Finland. First, uh, I have with me Dr. Kamila Tsepanska, and we will discuss how localities like Hokkaido took action in their own hands when the central government was perceived to be slow. Hello, Kamila, and thank you for participating in the podcast. Hello, Syria, and thank you very much for, for having me here today with you. Then I have with me Dr. Joko Demelius to discuss the toll of COVID-19 on the society and the 100,000 yen campaign, a promise from Prime Minister Shinzo Abe to support all the Japan- all Japanese households. Hello, Joko, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Celia. Hi, this is Joko Demelius. I'm happy to be here. So the government of Prime Minister Abe has been criticized for its slow response to the COVID-19 outbreak and lack of leadership in the time of crisis. This has put spotlight on local strategies to address the COVID-19. How did local governments react to this emergency? What would you say, Camilla? From what we have seen in many instances, prefectural and municipal governments were quicker to react and to propose innovative measures to address the unfolding COVID-19 crisis. Norio Okada, in his recent presentation, spoke about a reactive adjustment approach on the side of the central government, rather than an anticipatory approach. So in January this year, the first COVID-19 cases were recorded in several prefectures, including on Hokkaido. And as the spread of the virus in the community progressed, On the 28th of February, Governor Suzuki Naomichi announced a state of emergency that lasted until the 19th of March. So the state of emergency on Hokkaido, although it was not legally binding, was introduced over a month before Prime Minister Abe declared the state of emergency for Tokyo and its surrounding areas, as well as Hyogo, Osaka and Fukuoka on 7th of April. So Hokkaido was not among the selected localities then? No, um, actually it wasn't. Hokkaido was not covered by Prime Minister Abe's initial state of emergency declaration. But the second wave of COVID-19 infections caused that the state of emergency on Hokkaido was reinstated on the 12th of April by local authorities anyway, 
So again, before Prime Minister Abe extended the national state of emergency to cover all prefectures on the 16th of April. So the first state of emergency had very serious negative impact on key economic sectors in Hokkaido, such as hospitality, tourism, and agriculture. That is why this decision by local authorities to introduce the second state of emergency, even before the national government made its decision, must have been difficult. So all in all, what we saw was that the response of local authorities in Hokkaido was desynchronized from the steps of national authorities. They did it to respond effectively to dynamically developing situation on the ground. Other than Hokkaido, were there any more examples of innovative measures adopted by localities? Yes, uh, a plenty, in fact. Another interesting case uh, is Wakayama Prefecture. This time, the alternative approach had more to do with adopting testing and tracing practices that diverged from official guidelines provided by national health authorities. In mid-February, COVID-19 infections were discovered among staff and patients of a hospital in the town of Iwasa. Uh, Back then, at that time, the guidelines on who was entitled to undergo tests for COVID-19 were still rather stringent and the overall number of conducted tests was surprisingly low. However, despite this, the local authorities decided that it is necessary to track down and test everyone who was in contact with the identified COVID-19 carriers. So this approach, the approach taken by Wakayama, was similar to the steps deployed in South Korea and Taiwan to fight COVID-19. Another example is, for instance, drive-through testing in Niigata and Nagoya that was introduced already in March. And this particular strategy did not belong to the toolbox of responses utilized by the central government. So those are only a few examples. But what we saw is that local administrations across the nation tried to flexibly respond to COVID-19 crisis and to come up with measures that would prevent the further spread of the virus without waiting for the central government to act. So it seems that the last months have really put a strain on the relationship between the central and local governments in Japan. What would you say were the main sources of friction between the the two? Yes, 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 I would say that this 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 is definitely true. First, I think that we need to mention the issue of national state of emergency. So the legal basis for announcing state of emergency was secured in mid-March. But at that point, Prime Minister Abe and members of his government thought that the nation is still not in the situation that would merit such step. And they continued with this approach for the next three weeks. Various observers argued that the introduction of state of emergency by Prime Minister Abe, when it finally materialized, occurred in large part because of the pressure coming from the governors of Tokyo and Osaka, as well as representatives of medical community and public health officials. Well, how did regional governments react to the introduction of the national state of emergency? Right. So once the state of emergency covering only selected localities in Japan was announced on 7th of April, 
Some of local governments signaled that they would like to be included in that group too. For instance, Kyoto and Aichi prefectural governments. Before the national state of emergency was extended on 16th of April to cover all prefectures, authorities in Aichi and Gifu announced their own state states of emergency. Same as Hokkaido discussed earlier. So these local emergency declarations were not legally binding, but their timing demonstrates that there was a significant difference in the assessment of the COVID-19 situation between the central and local governments concerning the unfolding crisis and its impact. On the other hand, however, after the state of emergency was extended until the end of May, the local authorities in prefectures that saw relatively low number of COVID-19 cases started to relax their approach to business operations and social distancing. Those developments must have contributed to Prime Minister Abe's decision to speed up the ending of national state of emergency. So this happened in mid-May for 39 prefectures and on the 25th of May for the whole country. If we move on to economic issues, right. the, COVID, yeah, the COVID-19 crisis had, has had an immense impact on Japanese economy and pushed it back into recession. Were there any issues between central and local governments on how to tackle the economic fallout? Right. Uh, yes, yes, indeed. This was um, the second significant problem. So the support for businesses whose operations were impacted by COVID-19. Under the National Emergency Declaration, the majority of prefectural governments across Japan requested businesses to either close down their premises or to substantially limit their operations. This, in turn, put spotlight on the question of financial compensation for the lost income. Some of local administrations wanted governmental assurances that there will be the necessary financial assistance in the form of compensation or other measures, uh, such as, for instance, um, rent relief. And of course, this anxiety about governmental guarantees was greater among less well-off prefectural governments that could simply not easily follow in the footsteps of Tokyo, Osaka or Kyoto, and to offer their own support packages for local businesses. Well, what was the reaction of the central government then? Right. Um, this is a good question. Because initially, uh, the central government was reluctant to commit, but ultimately Prime Minister Abe had to yield. Towards the uh, end of April, a special subsidies program for local governments was included in the governmental economic response plans. Those uh, funds would allow localities to offer more support to businesses. And following after that, on the 27th of May, the cabinet accepted the the draft of a second supplementary budget and the funds available to local governments out of which they could compensate businesses were increased. Also, the government pledged to help out small businesses recovering large portions of rent costs for a set period of time. I think um, it, it is supposed to be around six months. Of course, those and other economic measures are going to increase Japan's sovereign debt, but at the current moment, they are deemed necessary to shore up Japanese economy. 
How about now, when Japan has gradually lifted the state of emergency? Is there still different action seen in the localities? Well, I think that the current moment, the differences seem to concern the speed with which localities are lifting restrictions and trying to restore normality as much as possible. For instance, whereas Tokyo opted for a phased or controlled approach, other localities were eager to move more quickly to restore economic activities and ease burden on businesses. I think that now both sides are trying to figure out what to do next. As we know, the crisis is not over yet and the second wave of pandemic is expected. Now then is the time for reflection, early assessment and examining the best practices. This first wave was a trial run for both central and local governments in Japan. So I guess that the challenge now is to improve on the, research per- on the recent performance. Well, it has been said that COVID-19 crisis has undermined the position and popularity of Prime Minister Abe. At the same time, it has offered an opportunity to other political actors to demonstrate their abilities as crisis managers. What would you say about this? Yes, I would definitely uh, agree with, with that statement. This is correct. So the two examples that come to mind are those of Koike Yuriko and Govern well Koike Yuriko the governor of Tokyo and uh, Yoshimura Hirofumi the governor of Osaka. Governor Koike was involved in a protracted wrangling with the central government over the extent of emergency measures that should be introduced to address the unfolding crisis in the capital most importantly which businesses should close their premises in order to limit the spread of the virus. Moreover, when the central government was still waiting compensation for businesses, Governor Koike announced uh, that businesses which comply with calls to close down or limit their operations will receive such compensation of, uh, I believe, 500,000 yen or 1 million yen. Also, during the past weeks, she used high level of media exposure which includes a YouTube interview with Hikakinin, to project an image of capable crisis manager. I think that we need to remember that this is the year of Tokyo gubernatorial elections, the postponing of the Tokyo 2020 Olympics and the COVID-19 crisis posed a huge challenge for Governor Koike. So increasing her political capital and presenting herself as an assertive and competent leader that is perhaps not only prepared to make hard choices, but also to carry responsibility for those choices, has been significant, uh, not only in the light of the upcoming gubernatorial elections, but also as a possible, for a possible future return to national politics. Right. Well, spe- yeah. Well, speaking of female leaders, mm. in recent weeks we have seen numbers of art- number of articles and opinion pieces praising yes, female yes. leadership in the times uh, of COVID nineteen. So names that have been mentioned are Germany's Angela Merkel, New Zealand's Jacinda Ardern, Taiwan's Tsai Ing Wen, or Finland's Sanna Marin. But would you say about Japan is Koike one of those names? Well, um, indeed, we've seen many of those reports and 
well, in my opinion, only the time will tell whether Yuriko Koike will be mentioned alongside those other prominent female leaders. We'll have to just wait and see. Well, what about Osaka's governor, Yoshimura? Well, yes, he was another figure whose public profile grew during the uh, COVID-19 crisis. Uh, this is this is certain. Well, he's one of the two youngest governors in Japan, and he was elected to his office only last year. Yoshimura was very outspoken in his criticism of the central government, and he called on Prime Minister Abe to announce the state of emergency and then to provide compensation for businesses impacted by COVID-19. In early May, when the central government extended the state of emergency, Yoshimura was quick to look into formulating conditions under which emergency measures should be or could be lifted. He felt that the central administration was not delivering on this point, and that is why he proposed an Osaka model, so a a set of criteria for gradual phasing out restrictions on people's movement and business activity, so de facto an exit strategy. So Governor Yoshimura presented himself as a determined and dynamic crisis manager. Uh, Yes, this is exactly what he was trying to, uh, trying to, to do here. And Governor Yoshimura is young and until today, apart from a short stint as a member of the House of Representatives, he held positions at the local level of politics. Uh, So I guess that as with Governor Koike, his increased visibility and projecting an image of a capable crisis manager uh, can improve his political prospects uh, in local and perhaps in the future national politics. Yoko, would you like to comment on Camilla's points? Yes, thank you. I do see some interesting and healthy competitions between municipal governments and the national governments on the effectiveness of various implementations and exit strategies. At the moment, the public is hungry for the clear presence of a good direction that comes from a leadership figure. I believe that it's a good and promising development in terms of increasing the level of governance by municipalities and prefectures. Okay, thank you both. Now let's move on to the social impacts of COVID-19 with Dr. Yoko Demelius. Yoko, how do you see COVID-19 affecting the Japanese society? What can we see so far and what do you think we may see in the future? Thank you, Celia. Um, One of the most important points we see here is that the pandemic made some existing social problems even more visible. I think it's a global phenomenon that vulnerable populations are the most affected groups. The visibility can be a chance to raise more social awareness. As Camilla pointed out earlier, the public witnessed strong leadership and decision-making capabilities by municipal governments. It's a typical case of seeing is believing. I think people are closely witnessing and experiencing many challenges that they are no longer some distant issues on the news. Rather, people are recognizing, for example, how fragile the employment structure is, how impractical their working arrangement is, and how the gender inequality is really catching up 
to their lives. So people are starting to voice their needs of changes. Okay, can you give some more detailed examples of such resurfaced issues? You mentioned some areas already, but but how about in more detail? Yes. Uh, when the state government initially decided to close schools in March, issues related to gender inequality and childcare became pronounced again. Initially in March, Abe administration ordered a closure of schools without proper support in place, such as sufficient cash handout programs or a protection of their employment contracts or educational and childcare options for families. And women were expected to take additional responsibilities for childcare in short notice to arrange their lives. And this led to a massive loss of employment contracts by women. Because many women in Japan are employed in the form of irregular or temporary work arrangements, so their contracts can easily be terminated. Unfortunately, this, these types of contracts that women hold are not only precarious, but the types of jobs they do also require them to go to the actual physical sites that do not allow remote working or a home office. And it's like a domino effect. In Japan, Many families have the right for a space at the childcare facilities under the condition that mothers work. In bigger cities where childcare facilities are limited in proportion to the demand, the space is insufficient and it's very competitive. This means for many women, the loss of their employment contracts meant the loss of access to childcare facilities. In a different example, single mothers who must rely on their sole income could not work because their children were at home or their contracts were simply terminated. This put a lot of pressure on single mother households. This would intensify poverty in children. Also, for many children in poverty, the closure of schools meant a loss of access to school lunch meals. So this is another phenomenon we see strongly that is related to poverty and COVID-19. So COVID-19 has had quite an impact on female employment. How about the employment sector in general? Spring is the time for new graduates to enter work life. Yes, uh, just this month, the Ministry of Health, Labor and Welfare has announced that the unemployment rates tripled in May since the pandemic started to affect. As I mentioned earlier, people with irregular employment contracts or temporary part-time contracts are very much affected in the current situation. In addition, what is happening here is that newly recruited fresh graduates are victimized. In Japan, where new graduates start working in April, this year they were facing the peak of the pandemic, which meant many companies withdrew from their contractual arrangements 
with their potential new employees. Small business owners and their employees are another example. They're in a precarious situation since they lack the infrastructure or possibilities for remote work. They rely on casual employment contracts such as temporary or part-time contracts. Since they cannot provide sufficient social benefits and protections for their employees, both their businesses and their employees are at risk of unemployment and bankruptcy. This makes the fundamental flaws in the employment structure of the country. Now, that's interesting, and it really reminds me of the 1990s uh, when Japan was in the long economic recession after the collapse of the overheated bubble economy of the late 1980s. The generation that graduated from colleges and universities at the time were called the lost generation. They were unable to start their careers in the time that was called employment ice age. Do you think there will be a second lost generation due to COVID-19? Yes, actually, I do believe that uh, we can expect that to come. There is a high risk of this happening. The rising tuitions of colleges and universities have put a lot of pressure on students and their families, particularly since the last few decades. And more importantly, it has coincided with the stagnant economy since the 90s. In order to pay back student loans and support their living costs, many students have been forced to take up part-time jobs while studying. It's a rather common practice in Japan. Since the government issued a state of emergency, many of those part-time contracts have been terminated and students have few means to make money and support their living and paying back their debts. This would mean that some students may have to give up or postpone their studies. Considering that companies are more reluctant to hire new employees in the post-pandemic economy, this may result in difficult employment situations for a specific age group. Now, Yoko, in your research, you have studied uh, marginal, marginalized groups in Japan, for example, illegal immigrants. What's the impact of COVID-19 on them? It's quite straightforward. Illegal immigrants are not registered immigrants, so they have no access to public medical care. In the scare of infections, many of them wish to return home, but they couldn't because they were limited flights operating, and they couldn't afford the flights. Also, their living conditions and arrangements are such that their living places could turn into infectious clusters. They're often packed into a small space of an insufficient hygiene standard. This could lead to being associated with the relation between racial profiles and infections. And they might attract unwanted attention from the general public and their stay in Japan would become even more vulnerable and their employment could become even more precarious. For example, if they leave Japan, visas may not be reissued and their possibilities of returning back to Japan would become decreased. 
We have questions such as can their families get torn between borders, etc. What I would wish the society to realize is that taking care of the vulnerable populations in Japanese, jaksha, socially disadvantaged individuals, is not somebody else's business, but rather it's the society's responsibility to take care of them because in the end, it's the society's best interest to assure the welfare of the population in a large scale. Yes, that's a very important point. Um, this COVID-19 uh, pandemic came at a time when Japan was finally adopting a new immigration policy aimed at increasing the number of foreign immigrants to Japan, of course, to alleviate the job shortage in the fast aging society. How has this situation uh, been affected by the COVID-19? Has it turned the general attitude more against immigration in general? Yes, unfortunately, this applies globally. Asian immigrants have a hard time, especially since COVID-19 is somewhat associated with its origin in East Asia. Now, specifically within Japan, there are some right-wing political groups that would overtly voice their racist propaganda against Asian workers and immigrants. In this sense, it's an opportune moment for the conservative groups to utilize the pandemic for their political mobilization. The Abe administration has promised a universal 100,000 yen cash subsidy to Japanese citizens and permanent residents, with the hope that the money would alleviate the economic difficulties and boost consumption. Now, when we're talking about marginalized groups, we know that Japan has close to 5,000 homeless people, nearly half of whom are elderly. We also know that the number of working poor is high. Japan's poverty rate is 16.1%, and it remains actually well above the OECD average, which is 11.43%. Is the help really getting through to these marginalized and vulnerable groups? The cash handouts would reach some people, but by no means all of them. Homeless and working poor would be those in this situation. People who don't have a registered address cannot receive the funds. The process requires an official family seal, the proof of address, a bank account, official papers such as a driver's license, a pension scheme registration, and the so-called My Number card, which is a social security number. People who are already in an illegal housing arrangement or those who dwell at internet cafes, capsule hotels, office space, park, and so on, can't receive the funds. Or in another case, victims of domestic violence are also having a difficulty receiving the funds. These victims are often women. Many women who are living in shelter reside in a different location elsewhere from their official addresses. In Japan, the official registration works in a form of a household and not by individuals. The form to apply for the cash handouts comes to a household and not to individuals. 
And the process of handling is also managed in the unit of households. What happens in this situation is that the head of the household, which is often the husband, receives the formula from the municipal government. And he has to write, he has the right to apply for the funds, and the money will be transferred to his bank account. For many victimized women, it's difficult to access the money needed for themselves and their children. Camila, would you like to comment on these topics? Um, thank you, Celia. I think that um, Yoko has definitely touched upon multiple important topics. And I think that COVID-19 crisis served just to simply multiply vulnerabilities and inequalities that were already there in Japanese society. I think that government, unfortunately, doesn't have a clear plan or a clear vision on how those should be addressed. And my personal worry is that many of those in the next months are going to slide back into obscurity. The thing that I could, I think, add from a point of view of a division of labor between the central and local government is that regarding those cash handouts that Prime Minister Abe promised, we need to um, realize that operationalization of this whole process of delivering those cash handouts to the recipients will have to be done by the local governments. And this is additional work for them, and it puts additional strain on them. In the case of smaller localities, those are better positioned to fulfill those promises fast. In the large urban areas, we already heard that citizens will have to face a longer wait for those cash handouts to reach them. Well, finally, I have one question for both of you. So Japan has now been living with COVID-19 for almost half a year. While the most severe measures have now been eased, at least for the time being, some impact and some changes are likely to remain as the new normal in Japan. What would you think these changes are from your own research perspectives? Yes, um, the biggest concerns I see in my field of minority communities and marginalized groups Help initiatives, events, and services that are meant to raise awareness have been cancelled and postponed. Some MPO services, such as kids' cafes that feed children in poverty, have switched their services from serving food to distributing food items and household goods to families in need. But it's not sufficient. Restrictive measures against social events and social contact would potentially isolate vulnerable groups. Isolation is already one of the main causes of their marginalization. So I think the current situation would add even more pressure to minorities and vulnerable groups. Camila. Uh, Right. So I guess what I would like to see happening is a change in the work culture and a change in work-life balance that eluded Japan for decades. Um, In the past months and weeks, many Japanese employers and employees discovered the merits of home office and telework arrangements. So I would like to see 
the current COVID-19 crisis as a critical juncture, perhaps, as far as Japanese work practices are concerned. And looking at my own research field, I'm concerned about the possible impact of COVID-19 on the third sector in Japan. Many Japanese CSOs and NGOs operate on a shoestring budget, and I'm afraid that the situation will only deteriorate due to the COVID-19 crisis. The problem here is the drying up of donation sources because of the economic strain brought by COVID-19. So I guess that, yes, this is my main, main concern. Camila and Yoko, thank you for joining me today in this discussion. This was all from Nordic Asia podcast for now. Until next time. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.